Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Blue Collar Gold Podcast. This week, I'm going to talk to my friend Allison Reynolds. I talked to her on our video cast for Surefire Live, and I am going to recap that here because it's such great information, and I think it's very relevant. If there's one thing I wish I would have done in business earlier was have better tax planning, and I still think of that right now. I, I think it could do better with tax planning. So I think she's got some great information, and I'll get back to you at the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Surefire Live. Thank you for being here tonight as the people join. I am excited. I'm always excited for our guests, but this next guest is a personal friend of mine. Allison Reynolds uh, has worked with me in, in the capacity of a CPA and also some CFO work for us. And I know she's also doing that for several other chimney companies. Well, I, I wanted to bring her on because this year, especially a lot of chimney companies and a lot of businesses, period, are making more money than they have before. You know, when the when the government pushes out a lot of money into the into the uh, flow, uh, a lot of us have been in the way of it and our businesses have really gone up. So. With that being said, with more profits, more money, a lot of us are not accountants, clearly, and we really don't know what to do with it. We spend it maybe unwisely. We try to do what we know to do, and then sometimes we report back to our accountant after the fact, and then they're like, why, why did you do that, or you shouldn't have done this or that? So tonight, Allison is going to be here to She's got some points that I wanted her to make, and especially working with service-based businesses. And secondly, this is open for questions for her. She is the smartest person I know in this in this CPA game as, and what she knows about our industry. So with that, I'm going to bring her on. Hey, Allison. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You really built me up. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been fantastic. Um, so... Thank you for joining us. I know you're busy. I know this is that you're starting to really come up. And, and I know it's not the busiest time of year, but I know how busy you are. So I'll tell you just real quickly, can you give the watchers and the, and the, the people a little bit of background of who you are, how and how you fit into this industry? Yeah. So I'm a licensed CPA, like you mentioned, and I do outsource CFO work in um, my field as a licensed CPA, but I also do tax work, which is a little bit unusual in my experience. I think I've found primarily people uh, in, in the accounting world will kind of stick to one or the other and stay in their lane. And for me, I've found over the years that there's really a demand for both and people really want a one-stop shop to talk taxes and also talk about budgeting and also talk about, um, you know, business decisions that you're having to make. And so I've kind of created a business around that, that I feel like has served a lot of uh, clients in this industry, as well as other industries that were thirsting for advisory. And so that's kind of what we try to pride ourselves on is not just a transactional relationship, more of an advisory relationship. So we do tax prep, but we also do CFO by the hour work. I do payroll, sales tax, 1099s, W-2s, basically anything a small business has to do in the accounting realm, uh, we get involved in it just because I feel like they want to just deal with one person. These are really personal issues and they don't really want to have to go to 10 people to get this done. So, yeah. Um, so, I've been, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, you mentioned something 
I'll tell you what, I'll let you finish and then I'm going to go back on something you mentioned. All right. Well, I was going to say that I've been in this field for 17 years and I worked at other smaller firms. I'll say like 20 people or less. Uh, Finally, after some urging, primarily from you, I think, uh, a couple years ago, I went out on my own and then I've grown my firm to five employees at this point. So in two years and, you know, I find that, you know, we're able to continue to find work every day. So I know there's a lot of needs out there and Unfortunately, we can't address everybody's needs. So I'm uh, thankful that I get to spend this time to talk about some tips that maybe somebody else would not get an opportunity to hear. And, you know, if they can't be a client of mine, maybe they can use some of this information and use it to their advantage. So Right. So you brought up a, a term and I want to make sure a lot of people know, but some people may not. The difference between a CFO and a CPA and a lot of people have CPAs or they try to use TurboTax or something. Can you explain really the difference in the two roles? And I know you take on both of those roles, but they're very different, right? They are very different. So a CPA, Certified Public Accountant, basically is a licensing that the state provides uh, if you meet certain educational and testing requirements. Think of it like being an attorney and that you take the bar exam. It's very similar in the accounting world. Most CPAs are in public practice. That's where you see it most commonly. Some of them are in industry. They usually just work uh, behind the scenes in a back office, and maybe they do serve as a CFO. But a CPA has certain requirements that they have to uphold to and their integrity and how they conduct themselves in business. And so it's it's much greater than an accountant or a bookkeeper would be. Uh, CPA has very specific rules in order for us to have our licensing in the state. We also have to keep up with continuing education, and that's 80 hours in Tennessee every two years, uh, for example, where I'm located. So it's a very rigorous um, licensing program. A CFO could be literally anybody uh, that has been in the finance world that have just kind of worked their way up through the ranks. They don't have to have the licensing. They don't have to have the education. Uh, they're, that's chief financial officers. Typically how that's referred to, it might be referred to as chief, chief finance officer. Uh, and you see those in, in industry uh, typically. And so some people can't afford a full-time CFO. I mean, most CFOs cost in the six-figure salary range if they're very qualified. And so doing outsourced CFO work, in my opinion, pairs well for smaller organizations. I would say people under 20 million uh, could get by with an outsourced CFO. When it gets over 20 million, it gets a little bit too too complicated. And I feel like it'd be better for you to have somebody there all the time. And really that's stretching it. I do have a client right now that's over, uh, that's up against 20 million. And I feel like it works well for us, but they have a good internal team. And so that CFO relationship is more of an advisory. It's day to day. It's um, budgeting, projections, lending relationships. It's Everything that you think that your CPA is probably supposed to be doing, it's that stuff uh, that the CPA doesn't have time to do because they're too concerned about just transactional, getting your taxes done, what's the next deadline, et cetera. And so because I do both, it does mean that I am deadline oriented, but also I'm more familiar with what's going on with your account. And we can speak to things regarding taxes, but also regarding projections or budgeting or, you know, um, lending options, things like that. And so it, it is a very much a hybrid relationship uh, that I serve. So so for me, um, I've, I started with a fractional CFO and now I have a full-time CFO. But to me, the CFO helped me look forward yes. and helped me stay on path, you know, on, on task and on budget. And the CPA helped me put it all together on the back end 
Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a good summary. Yeah. I think that a CFO is expected to be more forward thinking, whereas a CPA really just sees you after it's all the dust settles. Uh, And you might reach out to your CPA ahead of time and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think about it? But it's like you mentioned in the intro, a lot of people kind of that's an afterthought. Uh, And so then we kind of have to and do the housekeeping on the back end. So, so yeah, thank you. So with that being said, what, uh, you know, a lot of these guys are making more money or women are making more money than they have their businesses or more successful. They've, they've bought a lot of stuff. They may have more money in the bank account than they've ever had. Yeah. What are some good strategies? You know, I always used to just kind of spend, try to spend most of my money at the end of the year. So I had showed little profit. And then you start out the beginning of the next year with very little cash because you tried to not pay tax on it. So give us some ideas of what, you know, what people should do. It's coming at the end of the year. What should they do now? Yeah, I definitely would not advise you to spend all your cash down and put yourself in a situation where cash flow is a problem. Uh, But I do understand that sentiment. And that's been a lot of people's strategies over the years. And a lot of people have told me, like my CPA says, just to get it down to XYZ number. And then, you know, otherwise you're good. And I don't feel like we approach anybody's account that way. Typically what I'm trying to do is run projections about the next two months and then try to figure out where they think they're going to be and then kind of just make a hypothetical tax return to tell them this is where I think you're going to be. And these are the things I think you can do to reduce that number. Or maybe you don't need to do anything because you're at break even depending on what's going on. Um, And so we take a very catered to each client approach when we do tax planning. And that's basically when you said that uh, about how busy I am, I feel like when everybody else is having holiday celebrations, I'm doing tax planning. That's what's happening. And and, uh, and it's just a very important piece of the pie because once we get kind of past 1231, there's a lot of things that you could have, should have, would have done if you would have been told. And I feel like that's not the conversation I want to have in March that right. I should have been having in November and December. So uh, anyway, all that to say, I think tax planning is a very important piece. So if someone's engaged with a CPA, I would really encourage them to challenge that CPA to do some planning for them. Uh, I think they would get a lot out of that conversation and just kind of be more forward thinking like you were talking about. So it's just like doing projections for your business for a budget, the same thought process. We're just doing it for purposes of tax planning. Um, So, you know, it's so that I can determine how much I'm going to pay in bonuses and maybe I want to buy a piece of equipment before the end of the year. Uh, Maybe I need to make another estimated tax payment. Maybe I need to change my withholding. Maybe I need to max out my retirement. There's lots of things that I have to decide about before the end of the year that I can't do next year and affect this year. So uh, I think probably the biggest thing that I would start with would be you can control your income to a little to an extent, depending on how you file. So if you are what I mean is what's your accounting basis when you file your taxes? Are you cash basis or are you accrual basis? And cash basis is probably most common in your industry, or I would definitely suggest that people use cash basis, meaning that I don't pay tax until I collect it. And so basically that means those bids that you've put out that people have accepted, those are not those uh, or those jobs that are in the receivable ledger mainly. If I'm not collected it, I'm not paying tax on it. Okay. So most people are probably going to be in the cash basis, I would suspect. And Basically, what that means, and when I talk about postponing income and accelerating expenses, is if you can control your income, meaning let's say we complete a job before the end of the year, but I wait and bill it in January. 
then that is not a revenue in 2021. That's a revenue in 2022. And so I could shift income into the next period just by not collecting it before the end of the year. Uh, another example of that would be if we have like a training seminar that we're planning to do in the in the spring and we could go ahead and pay for it now, we could pay for it early, then we could go ahead and pay for it now and take that deduction in this year, even though the seminar is not going to be until the spring. And so if you have things like that on your list that you know you're going to do in 2022, you can shift that expense deduction into 2021 just by paying for it. And so uh, that's something that if you know you're going to do those things anyway, why not go ahead and take the deduction now? And some people might look at that and say, well, that's just a timing difference. What did that do? Well, it could have done a lot of things. It depends on if the tax brackets are going to change in the future. And I think there's definitely some conversation about that. Um, or it could be a situation where I, by saving those tax dollars today, I was able to take those dollars and then go and reinvest them in a different right. way and make money on my money that I got to keep. And so I would rather keep more of my money now if I can. And so that's, that's my motivation for postponing income and accelerating expenses. Another thing that a lot of people forget about is they think that when they charge something on their credit card, they have to go pay the credit card to get that expense deduction. So even if you're a cash basis taxpayer, if it is charged on your credit card, it is just the same as if you paid for it. So all those charges that happen up to 1231, you need to make sure your bookkeeper gets them in the books dated in the date that the charge actually happened rather than waiting for the bill to come in January and then putting the bill in January because those charges are actually 2021 charges. And wow. so even though you haven't paid the credit card bill, you still can take that deduction in 2021. Um, and that's just good bookkeeping. And so I think a lot of times, you know, that that's a struggle for a lot of guys that bookkeeping is not uh, something that we spend a lot of time and money on, unfortunately. And so I think that's something that they could easily do that would, you know, depends on how big your credit card bill is. Maybe it's $20,000 a month, then you could shift $20,000 of expenses into the, into the previous year. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is like payroll taxes or sales taxes or retirement matching. All of those costs are things where we've collected from another person or we owe it on behalf of someone. Those do not have to be paid before the end of the year for you to get a tax deduction. So if you've collected sales tax, but it's not due till January 20th, you're not paying tax on that money as long as you're accounting for it correctly in your books. Uh, same for payroll taxes. That's the same same concept. And then retirement matching can be taken as a deduction, even though you haven't paid it yet and you won't pay it until 2022. So those are things that even if you're cash basis, you still get to deduct them. So. Good stuff. So uh, that so that's what you really need to speak with your uh, accountant about or you about is planning those things out. So it, so I used to always think that we wanted to show very little tax at the end of the year and ver show very little profit so I don't have to pay tax. But that can turn around and bite you too just by yeah. – it, your company doesn't look like it's bankable or it, it can hurt you by always showing a loss or very little profit. Can you explain kind of why you do want? I mean, I don't like to pay tax and I want to <laughs> be strategic about it, but that's kind of been a problem for a lot of companies. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one, you want to have that open communication with your lender, your banker and have a good relationship with them because I think that they'll tell you what the bank expectation is. And there are certain things that when you go look at lending 
that they automatically will add back because they know that it's not a cash um, a cash transaction. So like an example would be depreciation or mileage or interest. And so when they're looking at your ability to cash flow to repay a debt, they will typically add those things back. So those things don't really hurt work against you the same as just, hey, I lost money this year and I have no explanation for it. Um, so I think it's important for you to know, first of all, what's a bank looking for in order for them to have the appetite to lend? And have that conversation with them. And then second of all, you know, is it really saving you taxes in the long run to show this loss? So sometimes what I've seen is let's say someone has an S corporation or a C corporation, primarily an S, I think this would most apply to, and they are paying themselves a large salary and it's creating a loss on the business, then they are in in essence creating that loss to pay themselves payroll, which is triggering payroll tax. And so really you should not pay yourself significant salaries so that on, on, you know, it's fine if you want to take a distribution in another way, as long as you're paying yourself adequate salary, but don't pay yourself more than what you have to create a loss and then pay more taxes because of it. That doesn't make sense to me. So, and what I'm talking about is that they're paying the social security and Medicare tax, which is like 15.3% when you combine the employer and employee. So that's just something real simple that if we do some advanced planning, then we can shift how you're paying yourself within reason so that that way you're not paying that extra 15.3 to not gain anything, basically. All you're gaining is Social Security benefits, and I don't think any of us is banking on a large amount of Social Security benefits. So it's not a direct correlation to that. So anyway, point being, you know, it's just something silly like that that you don't really think about. It just doesn't make sense for you to get aggressive in that bucket. You could look at it in other areas. Um, So anyway, I think having a relationship with a lender is important. I think showing some type of ability to debt service is important if you're looking to maybe take debt in the future. And you see this a lot with people that are self-employed and then they go to try to get a mortgage. And and of course, the the mortgage lender will say, but you got to show $100,000 or you're not going to be able to get X house. And they'll be like, well, I'm not taking any of my deductions this year. I'm just getting hosed on taxes so I can get a mortgage. Right. And that's not, that's not the way to do that, obviously. So, so um, and I know I don't want to get too far off your topic, but you keep bringing okay. up things that I know that I've seen questions like on Facebook and that kind of thing. So the other day, and you answered it on Facebook about mm-hmm. somebody deciding to be an LLC, an S corp or a C corp or a sole yes. proprietor. Can you explain uh I know it's different for every state, but can you kind of explain wh- how how you feel about those in relationship to our you know our service based businesses? Yeah, I've had I've had twice two of those conversations today actually, so right. uh, I feel like I've, I'll just be repeating what I said earlier today to those two clients. But it, the answer is it depends on where you live. That's the primary answer. Second answer to that would be consult with an attorney just to confirm that that's the right entity for you. Like if you have different protections that you need to take into account, you have other business partners, you need to have an attorney involved in that conversation to properly select an entity. But just from a tax perspective, uh, traditionally before the 2017 tax bill, I would have said S Corp is the way to go. Even in Tennessee, I would have said that. In 2017, when they changed the uh, tax structure and they added the qualified business income deduction is what it's called. And it's also referred to as Section 199A. And it's basically like if you have a profit in your business and it's a pass-through entity, whether it's a partnership, um, it could be a sole proprietorship, not a pass-through. 
It could be a single member LLC or an S corporation. Your profit is eligible for a 20% deduction. So meaning if I made $100,000, I get a $20,000 deduction. But if I pay myself wages, so let's say I had a $100,000 profit and I could pay myself $100,000 in wages, then my deduction just became zero. So there's no motivation to make the wage bucket bigger. Like you want your wage bucket to be as small as possible. But the conflicting goal is that with an S corporation, you have to pay yourself payroll. And I know that I've seen uh, people who are not paying themselves payroll. They're just taking distributions. You cannot do that. You are required to pay yourself payroll and it has to be a reasonable amount. And so that's determined case by case, industry by industry, business by business. But just use your common sense brain and say, what would I pay someone to do the stuff that I do? And that's your reasonable wage. Uh, so if you take care of the janitorial work and you also get on roofs every day and you wash all the trucks, what would I pay that guy? And that's right. what you need to be paying yourself, right? And so that being said, that is reducing our 20% QBI deduction that I was talking about. So at that point, it became less beneficial to be an S corporation and pay yourself a large amount of W-2 wages. It became more beneficial in some cases to be an LLC, whether single member or multi-member, because they're uh, not eligible for payroll. They can't put themselves on payroll. Everything they take is either a guaranteed payment or a draw. And at that point, if they were taking draws, it didn't reduce their QBI deduction. And so there's also a little nuance thing in Tennessee, for instance, and every state's different and everybody's going to have to go evaluate that. But in Tennessee, nine times out of 10, it's not better to be an S corporation. And the reason being is we have a specific tax that's called the Tennessee franchise excise tax. And it's on the profit of the company. It's six and a half percent. And if it's if all of your profit is subject to self-employment, you don't pay the tax. So if you're a partner in a partnership or you're a single member LLC, you don't pay that. You don't pay that six and a half percent. But if you're an S corporation, you do. And so, mm-hmm. oftentimes, that completely eliminates whatever benefit you would have by saving the self-employment tax. Has that changed? Because I remember hearing for years, uh, you know, that the S corp LLC or S corp was a way to go. Because yes. it is so that's a difference, a change in it for yeah, seventeen. So there's two things that I feel like. Well, one thing that changed, one thing that is important that never that was always uh, relevant, you could manipulate it so that that way in Tennessee specifically, so that that way in a legal way, manipulate it, I should say, uh, you can manipulate it so that that way the you could eliminate the six and a half percent. The biggest thing that changed is when the Trump tax bill passed and they implemented the QBI deduction. That's when I feel all these things kind of put into a scenario where every time I have this conversation with a client, I have to go run their specific numbers and figure out what's it mean for them. And not just what does it mean for 2021 and 2022, but like, where are you going to be five years from now and have that real conversation about if we're going to make a shift, does it make sense for us to make a shift five years from now? Because this is not something that we want to go through the trouble of doing. And then later to find out is a bad idea. Now I will tell you, I had a, a acquaintance that I met with recently and she was looking to make a change. They used a CPA firm that was out of state and they were not familiar with the Tennessee rules. They converted her single member LLC to an S corporation, which technically was in violation of her um, SBA agreement. She had an SBA loan. And so it royally messed up her loan. 
covenant with the bank and they had to basically go to the SBA and get it approved to get it switched over to the new entity. So it made a huge mess with that. And also it's going to cost her thousands of dollars just by them making that switch. And she had to go open up all new bank accounts. She had to get a new EIN. Like it was a, it was a train wreck and she didn't really understand what she was signing up for. They just told her it was going to be better. So she said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. But it's really important that you talk to somebody that's familiar with your state's rules, in my opinion. So You mean everybody on Facebook, it doesn't have the right answer? <laughs> Believe it or not, no. <laughs> I mean, I see that so often. And all I can ever say is kind of what I did, but that doesn't mean anything. You're bringing up some great points that no one should give any uh, no. any kind of advice like that uh, without several clients and not current clients, but people just anecdotally see a TikTok video on that very subject and forward it to me and be like, should I be an escort? And I always say to them, I'm not an escort. Don't you think that if I thought that was better, I would be one too, you know, right. and I'm, I, and, and I, and I of course would love to explain that to anybody that wants to have an, a conversation about it. I don't mind answering those questions, but I think that's the number one thing that's out there. And the misguidedness of it is it really depends on which state and it depends on your income level. So I'd rather watch a TikTok video about it and, and <laughs> get, all my, get all my <laughs> advice from TikTok. I, I, I think that what's going to be wrong with what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, so tell us, uh, you had some other tax uh, Yeah, I had a few. Yeah, I had a few other things that I think are um, just, you know, something that maybe is outside the box thinking. Um, so one is a lot of people are uh, philanthropic. They'll take, you know, 10% of their income and donate it for a cause. Uh, one of the things I think a lot of people forget to do or don't think about is instead of paying themselves and then paying the philanthropic donation, they could make that donation directly out of their company. And then that would avoid them having to pay themselves payroll, pay payroll taxes, and then turn around and make the contribution. So, and and you can choose to, it doesn't have to have an advertising component. It doesn't have to benefit the business at all. You can make a contribution directly from your business to a charity, and then you're cutting out the middleman, so to speak. And so it saves a little bit of tax there, whereas normally you would pay yourself and then turn around and pay the charity. And so that if you're a pastor entity, or a single member LLC or a sole proprietor, then it's just going to show up as one of your itemized deductions. And if you can itemize, great. And you can take that deduction there, but at least you didn't have to pay any extra payroll tax to make that happen. So I feel like that's, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people just don't think about. They pay themselves and then write their check, a personal check to church every Sunday. And they just don't really think that they could pay that directly out of the company if they wanted to. Well, uh, let me ask you a question yeah, about that. Ahead. Is there a limit to how much you can donate to charities or like, how does that work? No, there's no limit. It's just the problem is you may not get a tax deduction if you don't qualify to itemize. So if your married, file, and joint is somewhere around 25,000 total itemized deductions, and if you're single, it's around 13,000. And so there's more in that bucket than charity. It's things like mortgage interest, property taxes, medical benefits, or uh, medical costs. And so all those things have to be more than that threshold. And so if you're very philanthropic, you might be able to get to that number very easily. And so it doesn't matter. But the crux of it that I'm saying is even if you can't itemize, don't take that check to yourself, pay Social Security and Medicare on it, then pay the charity right. instead just pay the charity directly. And the only caveat to that is just making sure it's a bona fide 501c3 uh, charitable organization. I think a lot of people 
we live in the GoFundMe age. And so a lot of people will just kind of jump on GoFundMe and, and fund directly through that. And I think they now have a 501c3 uh, division of GoFundMe. But it's important that if you just do a GoFundMe, that's like a gift and that's not tax, that's not tax deductible. So just making sure it kind of filters through a 501c3 is important. Great. Good stuff. I have a question about that later, but I want you to okay, get to your right. stuff. Uh, so then the other thing I was going to mention is obviously we all know that Section 179 and bonus depreciation. Uh, I shouldn't say we all know, but I think we're all familiar with those. Terms we don't. We don't business. all know. <laughs> no, no. Well, they're very aggressive on the amount that you can take right now. And that's part of the government's attempt to flood money into the economy is that they make these uh, limits very high. And so then therefore you'll want to go buy equipment, take the accelerated tax deduction and, and fund the economy. I think the thing that I see most often that's a mistake there is that there are certain states that cap section 179 or don't recognize bonus depreciation. And so I will see people put on their depreciation schedule costs that don't need to be capitalized and depreciated. And what I'm saying is, is if it's a repair or like a, a not a renovation, let's just think strictly a repair. So let's say that like, you know, the van needs, a, you know, a new head gasket. It's a very expensive repair. Well, that is a repair that didn't improve the value of that van. It didn't increase its usefulness. It, you know, it didn't do any of those things. That's literally just a repair that should be directly expensed. It shouldn't even hit the asset list at all. Right. Even if it's a big dollar amount. Another example might be something inside your warehouse or your building uh, that you get done. Maybe you repaint or you do some new flooring. That's a repair. That's not an improvement. It's not like a build out. It's not like you put a wall up. That's different. That gets capitalized. Another example of that would be, let's say I buy some computers and they all cost $500. Well, then those can all be expensed because they're less than $2,500. So the IRS sets a threshold. It's $2,500. You can elect to increase your threshold to that if you want to. Anything that's bought underneath that, you can directly put in your office supply expense or small tools bucket on your P&L. And so I see people put all that stuff on the depreciation schedule. And then if they're in Kentucky, Kentucky has a limit on the section 179 you can take. And you're wasting that on these little piddly things that could have just been expensed. And so that can make a difference in your state taxes that you're paying. Um, and I don't think we're going to have anybody that's up against the overall limit of the federal limit. It's very, very high, but it's those state pieces that I feel like are kind of forgotten, you know? So anything that's under $2,500, that's a piece of equipment, you should be able to directly expense and you don't need to put it on your balance sheet and track it and all that type of stuff. So all right. The other stuff that I had on my list was um, obviously retirement planning. I feel like we all kind of know like, hey, you should put money in retirement. That might save you some taxes. But I think the problem is a lot of times we kind of forget to do that before the end of the year uh, or we forget who else we could include in that. So like an example might be I might choose to pay my spouse out of my business as an employee and I'm going to make him work for it. Right. I'm going to make him earn his keep. Of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, trust me, he, 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 he donates his fair share of work to, to what I do, but I might pay him out of my company so that he can defer his entire check to a retirement account. So there's caps on retirement, right? Uh, they're set by the federal government every year for inflation, and it's capped based on that and also your income level. But I can also pay other members of my family 
uh, who I'm, you know, we share money. Maybe it's me and my husband, or maybe it's your teenage kid that you were going to have to give money to anyway. And so you can pay those people for working in your business uh, and it serves two purposes. One, if it was your spouse, you could have them fund a retirement account themselves. And so it just amps up what you can put in a retirement account. If it was a kid, you might be shifting income to a lower bracket. So uh, if you have a kid that's below 18 and they, you know, somewhere between like 10 and 18, I feel like that's pretty reasonable that they would be working in the company. Uh, and you want to want to have timesheets and things like that to back up what you're doing, but you could pay them a wage and then they are in the 10% tax bracket, whereas you might be in the 35% tax bracket, right? Let me ask you a clar- clarifying mm-hmm. question. Is uh, is there some kind of like child labor law, have a 10-year-old working for you? Like where does I that... I think your children are actually exempt from that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And <laughs> isn't that sick and twisted? But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm talking about like you would want to look at what the upper limit of the bracket is for that that kid and what else that if they don't work anywhere else, maybe it's just that. And so you just look at the single upper limit of the bracket and know, well, I'm going to pay them at least that much. So that that way that's at 10% and I didn't have to pay tax on that. They paid tax on it and it was a much lower rate. That's a 25% tax savings. If I was in the 35% bracket, right? Right. So that's something that you could do. And also they can fund retirement accounts as well. Like you could have your children actually have a retirement account before they're even 21, you know, they could already have, and there are limits like 401k plans, I think don't allow if you're under 21. So there's some things like that that you need to know about, but they can even fund like Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs if you want to with that money. So um, yeah, that's a good way to shift stuff to a lower amount. I think if we have enough time, I've got two more. Do you feel like we can keep rolling? Oh, we're halfway through. And I've and again, real quickly, anybody yeah. listening, you got one of the best accountants in our industry. Please That's ask fine. questions. She uh, she probably knows the answer or knows where to get it. So this is free. This is super valuable if you take advantage of it. So, yeah, some free so, advice. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing I was going to mention is about renting to yourself. So I think it's common and, 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 you know, maybe you've seen this in some of the guys you've talked to, to own your building in one LLC, and then you operate your business in a separate company. It doesn't have to be an LLC and you charge rent to yourself. Like everybody kind of feels familiar with that. Uh, But you can kind of take that a step further and you can do some home office rental if you wanted to. And so if you had, like a space, like I work in a home office all the time. And obviously, Mark, you're in your home office, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. And so we use our spaces for business and all the time. And so we can pay ourselves, we can set up a lease agreement and pay ourselves rent from our company. And what that does is it's reducing, in my case, I'm a single member LLC. So all my um, profit gets subject to Social Security and Medicare. Well, it's shifting that income from something that's active trader business, which has Social Security and Medicare hooked to it to something that's passive, like a rental property that does not have Social Security and Medicare hooked to it. And it allows me to take deductions against that, which would normally be personal. So like my utilities, like my security system, like my lawn mowing and my housekeeping and et cetera. Right. And so it's taking these things that would normally be personal and shifting them into a tax deduction against the rental income. Now, I can't take 100 percent of my utilities. I can only use the portion that's in the square footage that I use. So like if the square footage of my home office is 
10% of my total house, then I would take 10% of my utilities as a deduction against that income. But that's the whole point of doing that is just shifting that income from something that's taxed at a higher rate to something that's considered passive. Uh, Another thing to think about there too, is if you are invested in real estate, oftentimes on paper, they don't cash flow, right? Or or they don't profit on paper. They do cash flow typically. And so you might have a loss on a rental property. And typically, unless if you're a real estate professional, those passive losses are limited to passive income. So we may have just created some passive income to let loose some passive losses that we've had sitting there. And so if you have some other real estate investments, that's a great way to kind of push that stuff through and let those losses offset those profits. And really you wouldn't pay any tax then technically on that money. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, there is one little tiny loophole that's kind of interesting that a lot of people are like, I've never heard of that. You can rent from yourself from from a, a home dwelling unit, you can rent 14 days and not pay any tax on it at all. And so it doesn't have to be that I rent for myself. It could be country stars do this in Nashville a lot. They'll rent a property to shoot a music video and uh, they will only rent it for 14 days. And so the person that owns the unit does not have to report that income at all. It's not taxable because it's below 14 days. Can you do that back to your own company? Like if you rent your own house for like a getaway for your own house and then charge that and then it's not. Yeah. So there are some caveats like it can't be for entertainment. So I know a lot of people want to do it for like Christmas parties or. Uh, large group gatherings or things like that. It needs to be more gator- catered towards like um, board of directors meetings or, and I don't know if you can hear my dogs bark, but yeah, <laughs> that, that is definitely two dogs barking and it's, it's out of my control now. Uh, but, funny. Uh, so you can, you could do it for like board of directors meetings, meetings with clients, um, taking time to take meeting minutes. And so what you would do is you would, to get a comparable price and how do you determine the amount and how do you decide if it's fair, you would basically call two or three hotels in your area, ask them what it costs for a meeting room for a day, take an average, and that's what you're going to charge yourself. That's right. that's how you would charge yourself out. And so if it's that 14-day rental rule, it's a it's called IRC code 280AG. Uh, so I know you're going to look that up later, right? I like that one. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so if you if you choose to exercise that, you need to make sure it's under the 14 days or under and that it's at a fair rate and you document what was done uh, during that time that it was used. You know, I mean, you want to make sure you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. So it doesn't have to be 14 days in a row, right? It could be. Well, it doesn't. It could be yeah. a couple of days or a day a month or something like that where you do yep. something like that. Yep. So like that, that literally takes something from being taxable in your company, you know, part of your profit and shifts it to something that's completely not taxable at all. And if you're renting from yourself, you're paying yourself, it goes in your pocket. So, And you can do that. Does that, it could be any property you own. Like if you own say a rental or a house or a time share or something. I think it has to be your a personal dwelling. And the reason being is it'd be hard for you to separate. Like, uh, so let's say you had an Airbnb how would you identify the difference between this rental occurrence and that oh. rental occurrence? And so I feel like it, I feel like my familiarity with the rule is that it was supposed to be a dwelling unit that you live in. So, okay. um, but I can confirm if we need to, if we need That's to okay. dig deeper. <laughs> I'm going to dig deeper. I like that one. So, yeah. <laughs> so you are going to look up 280 AG. <laughs> yes. 
while you're at it, this is something interesting that someone called me about recently. He said that he was invoking Act 60. And I was like, he said, do you know what this is? And you know this person that I'm talking about. So um, maybe you can guess. But don't say his name if you do. But anyway, so he said, that's what he was doing. He's doing Act 60. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And so I go look it up. And it's essentially you can exclude 100% of a capital gain in the U.S. If you move to Puerto Rico and you live there for 183 days and you make two donations to a charity in Puerto Rico, you can exclude your entire game. Do you know who I'm talking about? I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> and are you shocked? I'm not shocked at all, right? <laughs> no, he's that guy. Yeah. And I said, of course you are. That's what yeah. I said. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but there's lots of things like that that I feel like people just don't know about until they go and seek it out or somebody presents an opportunity to them. So anyway, just just a total sidebar. I don't think we know anybody that wants to move to Puerto Rico right now, but. <laughs> right. Not, not, not yet. Uh, So then the last thing that I had on my list just is some things that this is really specific to 2021 and 2020 and there it's COVID related. So have you heard of the employee retention tax credit? Have you heard people talk about that, Mark? Mm -hmm. And, And so there's some real specific caveats that go with it. But what I'll say is basically the bill, the infrastructure bill they just signed it made the expiration of that program uh, accelerate. And so they made it be expiring at 930 instead of 1231. So if you're taking that in the fourth quarter, it's now been taken away from you. And that so, was if you had a loss, right? In one, yeah, one of the so quarters. There were a couple of, uh, you know, kind of hurdles you had to get across. Number one would be if you were required to fully or partially suspend activities. And so, you know, here think like, Metro Davidson County fitness concepts had to be closed for like three months. That is the type of stuff they're talking about there where there was some type of ordinance or requirement for you to shut down. That gave you an automatic, even if you didn't have a revenue decline, you just had to, but it was only for your shutdown period. Okay. Uh, Then the other version is basically if you had a, uh, in 2020, it was a 50% decline. In 2021, I believe it was a 30% decline in revenue when compared to the same quarter in the previous, in 2019, actually, okay. I think is what you're comparing it to. And so basically the whole premise is we're going to reward you for keeping your employees on payroll during the time in which you had less revenue, which meant that those employees were not on unemployment. That's basically what the gist is. So you retained your employees. And so therefore, we're going to help you out with that cost. Did Um, you find many chimney companies qualify for that? No. Right. We stay pretty busy. They had a revenue increase. Um, Most of them didn't even qualify. I don't think I had one that qualified for the second PPP either. All of the ones that I worked with qualified for the first PPP because there was no revenue decline requirement. It was just, you know, a shoe in as long as you were open. And after that, really there's not been any other things that they've qualified for. Um, Well, what about the EIDL? I was going to say, I want us to talk about that at the end because I think that's important and we need to touch on that. Uh, And that's not free money, uh, but it's still great interest rate money. Um, So anyway, the employer retention tax credit, basically you would have to have a decline in revenue. And I have not seen that with a chimney business. I would say, I won't go into all the details, but basically if you look at your financial comparisons and you look at your gross revenue, so it's just based on gross, look at your 2021 by quarter, calendar quarter versus your 2020, 
and then do the same thing 2020 to 2019. And if you see that you had a downturn in 2020 or 2021, this is something you need to look at. That's that's what I would say about it. Okay. Um, if you want, we can talk about EIDL. Have you talked to many people that have taken that? Well, we're getting ready to try to take it. And uh, I have talked to a few people that have taken it. So, yeah, let's right. talk about it. Because it's coming to an end, like we are to yes, the end of the, the year. end of the year. Yeah. yeah. So, basically, it's when the money runs out or 1231. And I do feel like it's becoming more on the radar of most people. And so, I think there is a chance. I don't know where the funds stand as far as what's available. But because they increase the limits so high, I think there is a chance that that money could get fully exhausted before the end of the year. So I would say this is a do it now, don't wait. Um, but it is a loan. The It's economic injury disaster loan. That's what that stands for. It's been in existence pre-COVID. It's usually used when there is a, some type of disaster. And it's a lending uh, opportunity through the SBA. And this particular version of it they started out with a formula that was kind of based on how much money you were making gross revenue minus your direct cost. And then there was a multiplier. Well, after so many people didn't take it because everybody was kind of like, well, if it's not forgivable, I don't want it. Um, they started to bump it up and say, well, instead of getting that, you can get twice that. And then right. now it's like, you can get a half a million dollars. No problem. Yeah. Um, and so it's I super low it. interest yes. for 30 years. It's a 30 year term. 3.75% interest, no payments for the first two years. Yeah. Uh, if it's over, if it's $200,000 that you take, you have to sign a personal guarantee. So the second, so it goes from 199999 to 200. Now you got to sign a personal guarantee. If it's over 25,000, they technically have a lien on your assets of the company. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um so those are kind of the and and the money has to be used for operating costs. But that's very broad. That's very, very broad. And there's not a ton of accountability there, but I think it's just important that obviously if you take these funds, you use it for operating costs. It could be payroll. It could be rent. It could be, you know, your mortgage payment. It could be a payment on a piece of equipment. It could be any of those things. So a lot of guys that can't or girls that can't qualify for a standard financing, like let's say, you go to your bank for a line of credit and they're like, well, we just don't have anything to attach to or you're over leveraged or your credit's not good. Like you're not going to run into any of that with the right. CIDO. So yeah. it is cheap capital and in yeah. in every sense of the word. Um, I've had several people that originally said they didn't want to take it. They ended up taking it uh, since then just because they see that there's a great opportunity to do other stuff with that money and, and make it multiply. Well, for me, it also started becoming more interesting because of the uncertain economic times we might be facing with inflation and some other things yeah. that worry me a little bit. And uh, so it became more interesting as I started to worry about we've been on an amazing incline yep. and there's always something on the other side. I don't know what it is, but how, how many, how prepared can I be for that? It was why it became interesting to me because to, I wasn't going to do it at first. And now I believe we will do it. Yeah. The last time I think that you and I talked and we did, uh, I think we did podcast conversation. It was before COVID and it was about recession proofing. And part of that conversation was about, making sure that you have enough cash set aside to weather the storm. And I know a lot of us were around in 2008 and we all remember how difficult that was 
um, especially in your industry. I feel like you guys were heavily affected, just like yeah. anybody that was in the construction, uh, home service business realm, anything that had to do with housing, you can forget about it, basically. And those people that didn't survive were completely broke when it came to cash. And so if nothing else, like you can pay this off early. There's no penalty to pay it off early. It won't, if you take the full, let's say you take the uh, 500,000 and you decide you only need to keep about 200 of it and you want to pay the 300 back, it's not going to reduce your payment. You, your payment would still stay on the 30-year amortization at 500000 So that's something to keep in mind. But I mean, there's nothing to say that you can't take it, hold on to it for a little bit, see what happens, and then you could pay the whole thing off if you want to. And the cost is just that 3.75% interest in between. Yeah. Now, one thing I think you should think about is whether or not you want to take over the 200 and sign the personal guarantee. I feel like uh, I've been discouraging people to sign the personal guarantee, but I do understand how some people are like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm personal guarantor on everything else. You know, right. like, yeah. my butt's already on the line. Like what yeah. else, what's the worst that's going to happen here? Yeah. Uh, and so they'll go ahead and sign it. But I mean, that does mean that they could come after you personally to collect the money. So that's something that I've been trying to make people really think about before they make that decision to pull that trigger. And an LLC is not going to protect you from that. Like they can come after you personally for the money. And I'm sure the government would uh, exercise the full extent of the law in that case. But they, you know, I feel like this is the one law they will uphold. Yes, they will. <laughs> There's just others that they just let go. Yeah. Well, it's SBA. It's a whole different ballgame. Um, they do require a ton of paperwork. That's the other thing, too. I feel like and the experience is a little bit frustrating. So a lot of my clients applied for this loan just to get the grant. It was a $10,000 grant. You remember that? Yeah. It was the EIDL advance uh, and it ran out of money, like basically overnight. It, it felt like so a lot of people applied for the loan originally just to get that grant, did not, rescinded the loan offer, collected the grant and never did anything else with it. So if you're revisiting that and you have previously applied, your process to get it reconsidered is different than someone who has never applied at all. Okay. So, uh, and if you go on the SBA.gov website, they have a whole section about the EIDL and it literally spells all that out. Like if you've applied before, go here if, or send this email to this email address. If you've not applied before, go here and apply now. But the type of stuff that they're looking for is like copies of tax returns. Uh, you'll have to sign off that they can request a transcript from the IRS just to confirm that the tax returns you sent agree with what the IRS shows. They might want to see um, corporate minutes saying that you were going to take the loan and you guys voted on it. You know, they're going to make you sign a loan document. It's all of that type of stuff. And the SBA is a little bit slow to respond. So it ha it is a little bit frustrating to work through those things, but obviously it's worth it in the long run if you can get past the red tape. I hate dealing with the SBA. Yeah. Um, all right, so I've got a couple questions for okay. you. We're, we're getting used. To, we got about ten minutes. You still good on time? I'm good. Yep. So there was a couple of things that um, that was interesting to me. You and I have talked about the book uh, Profit First. Yes. And in the book, uh, he talks about having your company, if as an owner, or uh, pay your payroll, pay your taxes for you. Right. Uh, Tell tell me about, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the way that he's framing that personally is he's just saying that you need to prepare cash flow wise and pricing wise to make room for your tax bill. And not so much that 
your business needs to write the check, but your business needs to write the check. Like that's kind of the way that I understand the way that Mike McCallowitz is putting that out there is he's saying a lot of people are running fast and loose. They're making money and they're spending it uh, personally or otherwise. And then when it comes time to pay taxes, it's like it's an afterthought. And so I think what he's trying to get you to understand is, yeah, pay, pay yourself first. Um, set some money aside for profit, set some money aside for a reserve. Don't forget about your taxes because they do have to be paid. And so when you're trying to reverse engineer what that bucket of money needs to look like, all those different buckets we just described, you better darn sure make sure your pricing reflects enough to pay your tax bill. And if it doesn't, then you didn't do the math right. That's the way that I interpret that. But I think you know, he's making a very simplified version of how your taxes should be paid, if that makes sense. When I read it, I took it like he was saying, okay, your company pays you a salary, like you said, you need to take, but also your company pay is like right now, my company takes my taxes out of my paycheck. Right. The way I read it is that you should really have the company pay your, all those taxes itself. Is that right? I feel like we're saying the same thing. We're just saying it in a different way. I, like, I like every I week when instead yeah. of me, t- them taking it out of my check, it doesn't get taken out of my check. No, so. I, okay. No, uh-uh. I, I disagree with that. So, and the reason being is um, if you did not have enough federal withholding taken out to cover your wages, I just know how you're structured. So this is, I'm going to speak to you specifically. So, uh, and you're a little different than most of the guys out there. So this may not apply to everybody. So just, but the wages that you pay yourself, you need to have federal withholding on those, or you're going to owe a bunch of money on your personal return. And when that comes time for you to pay that, let's say that you don't have enough federal withheld out of your paycheck to do that, and you owe when it comes tax time, and you have Ash Busters write the check, then what that check is, is that is taxable income to you. Um, You could call it payroll. You could call it a dividend in your case because you're a C corporation. And you would pay tax on that dividend in your case because of the way you're formed. So they could do it as payroll or they could do it as a dividend. Either way, it's going to be taxable. When you are paying your taxes, you're paying taxes on taxes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I know it sucks. No one wants to hear that. Of course it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next question. Lease a vehicle versus finance it. Uh, People are buying a lot of new vehicles. Some people lease it. Some people finance it. Where, what do you think about that? So I will tell you that recently, because the used vehicles have increased in value so significantly, leased vehicles are selling higher than new vehicles. So like what I'm saying is, is if I'm at the end of my lease and I could buy out my lease for $20,000, I could turn around and sell that car for $25,000 or Mm $30,000 because used vehicles are so in need. And so that's just something that, you know, sidebar like, Leasing worked out for that person because the economy was such that it facilitated it because of all the shortages. Uh, Now, from a tax perspective, like which one is better? um, It's going to depend on how you've titled the vehicle. So like if you are able to say to me, this is 99% business or pretty close, then you could go ahead and put that in your business name. And then that deduction is going to live on the business. If it's an expensive vehicle, um, you know, like a more luxury type vehicle. Leasing might make more sense because the payment is a little bit cheaper. And obviously, if you're going to trade a lot, you don't have that burn off of the new car and everything. And I think leasing makes a lot of sense when you're in that kind of luxury vehicle bucket. Uh, But if it's more of a workhorse, like 
it's going to be the work truck. It's going to be a, a big van. I feel like it makes more sense to buy those in the long run uh, and finance them. So. Uh, good stuff. Uh, let's see. Did I have one other question? That was my main two questions. I'm so, so for some reason we have a quiet group tonight. Um, <laughs> no one wants so, to talk about taxes. Yeah, no. <laughs> they're like, I don't want to talk to, it. but, uh, but also <laughs> we end up getting about 400 views on this. So that, that sometimes the questions <laughs> they're just come absorbing later. it. They're just taking it all in. And, and sometimes, sometimes <laughs> they're embarrassed too. They're watching it and like, Oh gosh. I, I always tell people there's no stupid questions. Cause I feel like um, you guys didn't go to school to do taxes or accounting. Like that's not what you guys are good at. That's not your yeah. skill set. If you put me on a roof, I wouldn't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. So I think, you know, we all have our, we all have our strong suits and I feel like, you know, it's, it's okay to ask questions that feel a little bit like, is this a stupid question? And especially when you're in front of your peers, I think sometimes that's a little bit intimidating too. Uh, so I, I do have a question. Um, at what level should a company consider getting a fractional CFO? Is that from one truck? Should they wait till they're a million? Like where where should they budget that in? And about how much are they looking at paying not necessarily you, but a range of right. price of what that what that looks like to somebody? I think so for me, I don't think there's a size that's specific. I think some of the smaller ones I've worked with is somewhere in the, you know, 300 to $500,000 range. And I feel like I try to make it so that it's flexible, our relationship. So it's not like, Hey, I'm selling you this insurance policy that you don't need in this warranty. And you're going to pay me, you know, $2,000 a month, regardless of whether or not you exercise it. It's not like that. That's not the relationship I typically have with clients. If you found a CFO that was kind of like that, it's a very cookie cutter plan. Uh, they offer this package or this package and you have no choice. I think you're going to have to wait until you get closer to like a million dollars. And especially if you don't have a strong office staff already, you might need that person maybe a little bit earlier than that, just because, you know, if, this, if the office staff is struggling, a CFO is going to kind of bring calm to that, right. And bring some advice and expertise. And like, if they do the job well, then they can communicate with those people and kind of train them up, if you will. Because a lot of guys that I've worked with, their office staff is not experienced. They're not accountants. They're not, um, they might have done customer service, but they are not familiar with numbers. That's not their strong suit. They might have really great people skills, but they're beyond that, they are self-taught. And oftentimes the bookkeeper in most of these companies is self-taught. So I think it lends a lot of value to just to even have a resource for that reason. So like a, a one client I work with now, we have weekly calls once a week for an hour. That's their budget. That's what they were willing to spend. And we work on whatever she wants to work on, whatever right. problem she's having. And, uh, and so I feel like if you can find someone that can be flexible with you and, and find a sweet spot of the needs and not be so cookie cutter, it doesn't matter what size you are. That's my mm -hmm. opinion. Uh, but now we do get off in those conversations. I find things that I'm I'm dying to let like that person let me work on it and fix it. But I also understand that it's not affordable for everybody. And mm -hmm. so we have to be respectful of that. But I do feel like it would be an asset, not a liability is a lot of times what I tell people like it will, my fees will pay for themselves and the things that I do and the things I come up with. So I always felt like I was behind on when I brought in true professionals to do stuff. By the time I brought somebody in, I felt like I was always kind of late. I should have done it way yeah. before. 
You know, I mean, because then I got to pay for the cleanup of what I didn't do or didn't do right for so long. Like I I always find that if I hire really good professionals early, they always pay for themselves or save me more money or prevent me from spending money or going down because I've had to fix a lot of messes, as you know, from from just different situations that are so expensive to fix versus having it gone right from the beginning. I think it's hard, though, to see that. And you've you've seen both sides. That's why you can comment on it. But a lot of times when everything's great and it's perfect, then you start to be like, well, I even need this person. And it's like, well, Mm. the whole reason why it's that way is because this person's doing their job. Like, you know, so I think sometimes the temptation creeps in to say, well, this is an area. And, and, you know, if there's another recession, I'm sure that that is an area that people just like advertising, just like consulting. It, that's those are the areas where people try to cut the fat. And oftentimes those are the areas that the fat doesn't exist, that there isn't fat there. There's value there. And it's hard to see that if everything's always run smoothly, you don't know until you take it away. Right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, or you you go off the rails or I'm you good. find someone really bad at it. <laughs> yeah. So two more questions. OK, so. When uh, I want to talk about 401k versus SEPs for the small companies, what should some of the smaller operators? I had a a self-employed pension at one time that made sense. We have a 401k in our business now. Can you kind of explain that as a benefit or what an owner should do in that kind of realm? I think I can make that pretty simple. I actually did that conversation with someone else today, too. We were looking at different funding options for retirement. So, you know, you have your very simple one guy, no employees. Um, he's got some options, right? He could do a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, uh, depending on their income limit. The Roth may be off the table, right? So, because once income gets over one hundred and ninety-three thousand, I think for married filing joint, the Roth is off the table. You don't qualify. Okay. Uh, and then the next step up, the next easy option is to do a SEP. I think you mentioned a SEP. The SEP allows you to do a significant amount more than a traditional or Roth IRA. So a traditional and Roth IRA, their limits collectively, you can put in both, but you can't, You the maximum is combined between the two. It's 6,000 or 7,000 if you're 50 or over. Uh, with a SEP, you can put in 25% of your self-employment income. And so if you have no other employees, a SEP is a great tool to get higher than the traditional or the Roth IRA options. But, um, you know, you still are putting 25% aside. It's a pretty significant amount of your self-employment income. And you get a tax deduction for whatever you put in the SEP. And you have until the due date of the return with extensions to file or to fund a SEP. So if you don't know that you want to do it right now, but flash forward to next year, let's say you do an extension, you don't file till October. That's something that sometimes we throw in at the last and say, hey, save you, you know, 20 cents on the dollar to put money in a SEP. Maybe you want to go ahead and do that. Uh, so that's what a SEP option would be. Let me just clarify that. On a SEP, it's really as long as you don't have employees. It's very important that you have no other employees because okay. if you do for you, you have to do for them. Right. So and most people are not going to want to fund 25% for their employees. That's a little right. bit out of hand, right? And if right. you do, then I'm happy to come work for you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so a SEP is really just, these are all kind of solo guys at this point. And a SEP, you could hire your spouse and you could pay them payroll and fund the SEP for them, but I probably wouldn't get beyond paying anybody else. The next one that's a low cost 
plan that works really well when you kind of start getting employees. It doesn't allow you to fund as much, but it usually works pretty well for small operations is a simple IRA. So that's S-I-M-P-L-E IRA. And if you Google that, you'll see that basically the limits are almost double what an IRA is, a regular IRA. So it's not as high as a SIP typically, but you can fund for your employees and they can fund for themselves. So they can defer up to the maximum if they want to too. And then you have to match dollar for dollar up to 3% typically into their account for them. And everything we've discussed except for the Roth IRA is pre-tax. They're all tax deferred accounts, meaning they're going to, you get a tax deduction today, they're going to grow. And then when you take them out, you're going to pay taxes on the whole thing. So that's important to note too. So a simple IRA is really low cost. Like usually the cost is on the employee account and they get an advisor that will talk to them about what they're investing in. You're putting 3% in for them. You know, it feels like you're invested in your employee and they're vested in their retirement future. And so that one's a great option. Financial advisors can set up any of these accounts that we've talked about so far. Um, So that's a simple the next option would be a 401k. That would kind of be the, the next logical step. And you can have two versions of that. One can be where it allows, well, there's lots of versions. There's lots of rules that you could set for these, but kind of the two basic are one does not allow for Roth contributions and the other one does. And so what that means is if I put money in a Roth, then it grows tax free and I don't get a tax deduction today. So if it has a Roth component, the entire deferral from the employee um, could be completely put into a Roth. And so that means they would have that tax-free bucket. And so a lot of people like that option. I personally do as well. And that's what I have as a Roth 401k. Because if I'm over the income limit to put money directly in a Roth, then I'm not going to be able to get anything in that bucket otherwise. And number two, the other thing to think about is it's not just about what I'm saving today from tax perspective. So we talked about earlier about like the QBI deduction um, and that's that 20% deduction of business income. When you put money in your retirement account and you get a tax deduction, it dilutes that 20%. So it's reducing your business income for that 20% consideration. And what that means is later when I take that tax deferred money out and I pay tax on it, they're not going to give me that 20% deduction back. That's a sunk cost, right? right? And so, whereas if I put it in a Roth account and it's not tax deferred today, but it's growing tax-free, I'm not giving up my 20% deduction. Now, I'm not saving taxes today, but I'm also anticipating that the market will go up. And when I need it, the money in retirement, it's going to be significantly higher in value than it is today. Are you also anticipating higher taxes in the future sometimes? That's correct. Yes, that's the other issue. So uh, it's one, there's tax-free growth. But two, I think we all agree that when we look at the last two years spending, we know that there's going to have to be a day where they're going to have to make the balance, the bu- balance the budget, right? Like, And so they're going to have tax increases. And if you look at history, taxes have always pretty much increased over time. And so I think it's safe to bet that by the time I get to the, you know, age 70 and a half and I want to take this money out, uh, which is another, you know, 30 plus years from now, 50 years, 50 years. Yeah, no, it's not that far, uh, but that's a long time from now. And, and I'm probably going to be in a higher tax bracket than I am today, whether it's because brackets are increased or maybe it's because I just make more money than in retirement than I do now, you know, mm-hmm. we can all aim for that. So, 
point being, I like the Roth 401k the best because it kind of gives me the flexibility. If it's a year where I want to do Roth, I can. It's like, let's say they take away that 20% deduction. Maybe I want to start doing all in the pre-tax bucket again, or I want to have a good balance between my um, retirement funding options and, and kind of diversify my retirement strategy. That's a great way to do that. So for 401ks, you can have as many employees on the plan as you want. And typically you're going to match their contributions. It's flexible. You can set the percentage yourself, but it's most of what I see is three or 4% dollar for dollar, basically. Um, and the employee can of course max out too. They can put big dollars away. So for the owner in a 401k plan, you might be able to put like $58,000 in a 401k plan by the time you combine profit sharing and deferment. But if you do profit sharing, you got to do it for everybody. So right. it's all about getting they call it a third party administrator, a TPA, getting them involved to do the testing to try to see that you're being fair because you can't take like a highly compensated person, put a big bunch of profit sharing in their account and not do it for everybody else. And so okay. there's there's rules that you have to adhere to there. Um, but 401ks are the more expensive option, but they allow for you to have the most flexibility and fund the highest amount. And and you don't have to have employees to have a 401k. You could have one person, you have a solo 401k, um, or you could have you and your spouse. That could be the, your 401k. But is the SEP better if you're solo? I don't think so if you want the Roth component because you cannot put any Roth money in a SEP. So if I'm over the Roth limit, the income limit, and I can't put that in a set. The only way I can get to that Roth bucket is through a 401k. So, and I do prefer that as a tax mm -hmm. strategy personally. And, and I do that myself. I mean, that's what I do for my own self. Is this something that if people are interested in this, should they talk to a financial advisor? Or should they talk to a CPA? Who, who, who is the person? To I think talk you to? need to talk to both. And so um, what I try to do is have partnership with a financial advisor and we work together on the account. So today, the call that we had, it was myself, financial advisor, TPA, and the client. And oh, so, wow. and we all work together collectively on this client. And so when there are decisions that are getting made, whether it be the financial advisor wants to cash out some stock, he's going to call me and we're going to have a conversation about what does that do to that person's taxes. Uh, the TPA is obviously getting more fed information from us, but I can't do the testing that has to be done to be compliant with the plan. And so that's when he's involved. And so I think my approach to that has always been, we work better for any client if we communicate directly with each other, rather than letting the client be the feed through for all these things, because Nine times out of 10, you don't even know what the hell I'm talking about when I just describe all that, right? So it's better if I can just talk directly to the person that knows, and then we can include you in our decision. But like, basically, the three of us put our heads together, came up with this strategy, presented it to the client, and let them decide which one they wanted to do. And then the three of us will go execute it. That's what's right. happening. So, well, yeah. tell us something fun about Allison. What do you like to do? We're going to wrap it up with what I know you're big on fitness and you're big on animals. What yes. tell us about Allison? What do you like? What's fun for you? Uh, well, I, I'm enjoying being at home and my dogs being able to be here during the day. I think that's a really nice thing. I worked for years in Nashville. I drove you know, two hours in the car every day. It was the most miserable experience ever. And so I like 
the fact that I get to be at home in, in my leggings and, and no makeup and my dogs get to lay on the couch all day. It's a really nice experience. Uh, and I know they appreciate it too, but I do CrossFit like you mentioned. And so I enjoy weightlifting. That's kind of my, that's how I express my frustrations from the day. Is through <laughs> weightlifting. <laughs> yeah. I, it'd be tough for me. I, you, you speak a different language than I do, but I always <laughs> respect that and, and appreciate it so much because we, as blue collar businesses, that's not yeah. our thing. And that's but okay. we we absolutely need it. And mm-hmm. the funny thing about these businesses is that we're becoming bigger businesses and yep. we're becoming more complex. And we're we're it's a different life that's starting to happen for a lot of us, and we don't know exactly what to do. And we gotta get we have to get professional help in that way so that we don't waste it, make big mistakes and yep. and uh you know, we only have, you know, in the blue collar world, we have a certain work span and we've got to make the most of it. Yeah, so. that's true. I mean, it's almost like a professional football player, right? You're only yeah. you're only going to be in for so many years, right? Yeah, that's a <laughs> great I, way to I put it. Like it. It's a grueling career, obviously, for a lot of guys and especially if they're spending a lot of time in the field. Um, and I know that, you know, there's different types of owners, different types of entrepreneurs. Um, some are really strong in the stuff that has to be done in the office. Some are really strong in what has to be done in the field. Some are really strong in strategizing or thinking about new ways to do things faster, whatever, or customer relationships. So there's takes all kinds to make the world go around. But I think it's important to whatever, wherever your shortcoming is, to fill that gap with a quality person. And it's okay. You cannot be all things. There's lots of things I'm not good at. And so I hire a professional to fill in that gap for me. So if finance is not your thing, I definitely encourage people to seek that out and try to find someone to fill that gap for them. Um, Maybe marketing is not your thing. You seek out someone to fill that gap, you know, et cetera. And then that way you can be a more well-rounded business owner, you know. Have you ever taken, uh, I, I'm curious what you found. Have you ever taken the strengths finders test? Have you ever done that? I've taken a couple of them. I'm not sure of that name. Okay. This one's called the Gallup, so like Gallup polls, strengths finders test. And it was suggested to me by a client. They use it as a means of vetting employees to hire and I think legally you cannot say that you didn't hire somebody due to their strengths finders test. But I do find that it's intriguing because it gives you a list of your strengths and then it ranks basically it by default gives you a list of your weaknesses because they're the things that are at the end. I so don't the, have any of those. This won't do me any good. Well, I felt like someone was peering into my soul when I read mine because it just felt like the person must have known me that wrote this. Um, and it's a real quick test. It really doesn't take that long to do. And I think it costs like, you know, 30 or 40 bucks. But my point of that is, is to say that the whole premise of it, instead of saying, well, here's your weaknesses, you need to work on those. It's a, here's your strengths. So why don't you focus on capitalizing on those? And these are the things that you're not that great at. So why don't you go and try to find um, a match to compliment you? So whether it be an employee that you hire or a consultant that you hire. And so I feel like it was really telling. And of course, it's not going to say, well, you're terrible at debits and credits, but it might give you some indicators as to where you feel like you might need help. And the other thing too, that I think people should do is make a list of the things that 
fulfill them uh, in their day to day and a list of things that don't and then try to hire things, people for the things that don't. So if you enjoy customer relationships, then focus on spending your time in your business in that way. If you don't enjoy that type of stuff, hire a really great customer relationship manager. Um, And so I think that if you'd spend more time in the things that you're better at and that you enjoy more, your business will excel, you know? Yeah. Very, very wise words. And I couldn't agree more. So, well, Allison, thank you for joining us. I've, I've left your uh, information up here and uh, you may be hearing from some chimney people. And uh, I certainly appreciate your time and, and really great advice. Thank you very much. Yeah. So nice to see you. Yeah. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I know that sometimes financial talk is not the most exciting, and uh, but I tell you, especially if you're having a banner year, make sure you talk to your advisor or talk to Allison, and make sure you you do the best you can with with what's happening to you. And there was some great advice about what to do with some of the uh, government funding that's out there and how to take advantage of it. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed tonight. And we will see you next week on Surefire Lab. Talk to you soon. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Allison or the videocast. I always learn a lot from her. And I just wanted to close out by, you know, this is Thanksgiving weekend and we have so much to be thankful for. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for our customers. I'm thankful for my family and thankful for my good friends. And we are so fortunate in so many ways. And I think that obviously is the key to happiness. And I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend. And if you don't have people to enjoy it with, go help somebody else. Go do something for someone that is not as fortunate as you. So that's our time for the week. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blue Collar Gold Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or any place that you listen to podcasts. More information is also available at markstoner.com.